Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our study is The Baptism for the Dead and uh, you might think that's a strange title uh, but it comes from a verse in the scriptures. I want you to turn there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, we'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we will see what that verse tells us and once we read the verse everything will be clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is an interesting verse that the Apostle Paul wrote and we want to explore that today a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we are looking at verse 29. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. The Bible here says, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? How many people heard a sermon about this verse? In my entire life, in my long years of life in the church, I have never ever heard a sermon about this verse. Doesn't the Bible say that man shall not live by bread alone, but what? By every few verses, by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, this is some of the words that proceed out of the mouth of God. Why is it that we don't really discuss these words? And the answer is really simple. It's a strange verse, isn't it? It's a puzzling verse. As a matter of fact, a lot of people read this verse and they say, well, what in the world is Paul talking about? I don't have a clue. Let's just read the next verse. And they keep going. And uh, there is something here that Paul intends and means that is important for us to understand because everything is written for our admonition and for our learning. So we want to explore that a little bit today. And uh, the baptism for the dead, you know, there's an interesting practice among a group of uh, Christians who call themselves Christians, uh, and that's the Mormons. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that or not, you might be, but uh, they have a very special service, a very special ceremony uh, that is called a baptism for the dead. And in that particular service or ceremony, they will uh, have people who will go into the water and be baptized on the behalf of a dead uncle or auntie or some ancestor who had passed away. And you might think that's a really strange practice. Is this really what Paul was meaning? And the answer, of course, is no. Actually, some of these people might be baptized 10, 20, even 30 times. And if you go up to them and say, oh, this is really bizarre. Why are you guys doing this? They will open their Bibles and they will take you to this verse. And they say, well, right here, Paul says, the baptism for the, for the dead. This is their justification for what they're doing. Is this what Paul meant? And if it's not what Paul meant, what did Paul mean? And what benefit is it for us today? So... We want to explore that a little bit. This is a little bit interesting when you talk about a verse that nobody's ever heard a sermon about. It's kind of a clean ground. So let's see what we can find as we explore this together. You see, when you look at, uh, at this verse, you know, there are so many people who try to explain it. It's very interesting if you go do some research and find what some commentators have to say about this verse. Uh, sooner or later, somewhere along there, they'll say, you know what, we don't know what Paul is saying, but we think it's this. And they come up with all kinds of explanations, some of them more interesting than others, most of them conflicting with each other. And the explanations many times have to do with trying to 
redefine some words and say, well, this word could also mean this. And we look up in the Greek and find some obscure shade of meaning and try and put it in there and make some sense. They don't make that much sense, to be honest. At least when I read through it, I thought this doesn't really add up very much. At the foundation of misunderstanding this verse is a misunderstanding of one word, one key word in this verse. You know what that word is? That's baptism. I want to explore that a little bit today. Because when I say the word baptism, or when we read the word baptism, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Someone going into the water and getting baptized. Isn't that right? We're going to have a baptism this afternoon, and that's exactly what will happen. And so when we read the verse and we read about baptism, that's the first picture that comes to our mind. And it's based on that that most of the explanations try and make sense of the verse based on that understanding. But the problem is we need to explore and see, is this really what Paul meant or is it something else? You see, remember, misunderstanding one word can lead to disastrous results. The Millerite movement experienced a very, very great disappointment based on a misunderstanding of one word. You know what that word was? Sanctuary. Isn't that right? And the cleansing of the sanctuary. The sanctuary was assumed to be the earth. And so the whole event was based on your cleansing of the sanctuary. That means Christ will come and the sanctuary is earth. So Christ will come to the earth in 1844. And the believers experienced a sad disappointment. And it was only when they went back to the Bible and said, hold on a minute. Who came up with this sanctuary is the earth idea? Let's, let's study the Bible. And they found out that the sanctuary is actually not the earth. There is a sanctuary in in heaven. And that then helped them understand what the disappointment was all about. And that became the foundation, of course, of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. So it's important for us to understand every word in its place. What exactly does this verse mean? That's what I want to explore today. And more importantly, what practical meaning and application does it have for us? You know, it's one thing understanding the verse, that's all good and well. But what does it practically mean for us Today, this is what we want to understand. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 6. We'll be asking a number of questions here today as you turn to Hebrews chapter 6. The first question we were going to be talking about <clears throat> is which baptism was Paul referring to? Okay? That's question one. In order for us to understand the verse, we need to answer these questions. Which baptism is Paul referring to? Number two, question number two is, who are those who are baptized with that, with that baptism? Isn't that right? Because the verse says, else what shall they do that are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not again, what, why then are they baptized for the dead? So who are these people that experience this baptism? And the third question we want to ask is, who are the dead? Because they're also in that verse. Three questions. And if we answer these three questions, we should be well on our way to understanding what Paul means. Okay, so we'll deal with the first question. What baptism is Paul talking about? And it might seem like a very strange question. What do you mean? It's obvious. Baptism is baptism of water. Let's have a look at Hebrews 6, verse 2 is what we're looking at. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 2. Notice carefully what the Bible says, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. First thing there, Paul says, of the doctrine of baptisms. That means what? More than one. Mm-hmm. So we need to keep that in mind. What is Paul talking about? You know, when I first came across that, I thought, well, baptisms, doesn't it say in Ephesians chapter 4 that there is one Lord and one faith and 
one baptism, and over here it says baptisms. How do we reconcile the two? And the answer is uh, actually very simple. There is only one true baptism in each category or kind of baptisms. Let me explain what I mean maybe by a verse. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And like I said, I want you to pay careful attention. I want you to think as we go through our study this afternoon. Matthew chapter 3. <clears throat> How many baptisms? Matthew 3, verse 11. John speaking, he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. How many is that? Right? You count? One, two, three. Baptism of water, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and baptism with fire. John was speaking. There's no question about it. There's three kinds of baptisms right there. There's only one true baptism in each kind. There's only one valid, legitimate water baptism. There's only one valid, legitimate baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's only one valid baptism with fire. That's what Ephesians is referring to. So that's important to keep in mind. Three baptisms. Now, we all know the water baptism. That's when a person is immersed in water, when they publicly want to declare their acceptance of Christ and being dead and buried with him. What about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And also, what about the baptism of fire? We need to understand a little bit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is when the believer receives the Holy Spirit with power. Isn't that right? Jesus said to the disciples, tarry in Jerusalem until ye be baptized from on high. And the baptism was the promise of the Spirit that God was going to send. Isn't that right? And that's when they received the baptism of the Spirit. And they went out and they preached the word and they gave a witness. And then there's also the baptism of fire. What is the purpose of fire? What does fire do? It purifies and it cleanses. Isn't that right? Now it's interesting that when the disciples received the Holy Spirit, something physical and visible occurred. You remember what it was? There were tongues of fire. So the Holy Spirit and fire is very closely associated. And we need to understand and explore that a little bit. Fire does not only refer to that cleansing, but it also reveals the process of cleansing as well. Let's go to another verse in Luke chapter 12. You with me so far, everyone? Okay, this side, you okay? Okay, we have here this side. I just want to make sure. The back there, everyone with us so far? Okay, that's good. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. So obviously there's more than one baptism. Now we just want to determine which one of these was Paul talking about. That will help us a great deal. Luke chapter 12, verse 49 and 50. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. The Bible here says, Jesus speaking, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it, already, if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Isn't that an interesting verse? Jesus says he came to bring fire on the earth. The parallel text to that in another gospel says, 
I'm not, uh, I'm not come to bring peace, but a sword. a sword. What is this fire that Jesus talks about? And what is the link between this fire? And then he immediately says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. That means it has not yet happened. Now that's interesting. When Jesus said these words, had he received the water baptism? Yes or no? Yes. Had he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Yes or no? So what is he talking about? What is this baptism that he is yet to be baptized with? What was the third one? A baptism with fire. And this is what Christ was just saying. I'm come to send what? Fire on the earth. And I have a baptism to be baptized with. Let's look at another verse. Let's see how this clears up a little as we go along. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. What is Christ referring to? And how does that help us today? Matthew chapter 20. <clears throat> you know the story very well. Let's just read it because we want to look at the words that link with what we've been studying so far. Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 20. Matthew 20, 20. The Bible says, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshipping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. Interesting account, isn't it? A very revealing account. You know, Peter, uh, John and uh, his brother, they had every good intention and meaning. They brought their mother to intercede and strengthen their cause. They really had no clue what Christ was talking about. They just wanted it so bad. Jesus says, you, you, want, you, you sure you want that? You need to be baptized with the baptism. You need to drink. The I said, yes, whatever it takes, Lord, whatever the cost, we want to be in that position so much. And Jesus said, you know what? You will really drink of that cup. You will be baptized. But it's up to my father as to who sits on my right hand or my left. What was he talking about? What's this baptism that Jesus was talking about? It's the same baptism that he just mentioned earlier. I have a baptism yet to be baptized with. It is a baptism of a fiery trial, an ordeal of great and intense suffering that Jesus was yet to receive. And of course, that takes place when? At the end of his life. In the last moments there from Gethsemane to the cross. You remember, because what baptism is associated with a cup? It's right there in Gethsemane. Remember when Jesus said, Father, please take this cup from me. That cup was the cup of suffering. That was the baptism that he was referring to. And that baptism is what he was talking to his disciples about. He says, you're going to drink of the cup and you're going to be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with. What that means is Christ told his disciples, you will experience suffering. Isn't that right? 
before you can sit, before you can even qualify to sit on my right hand or on my left. That's a very significant aspect. You see these three baptisms, water, Holy Spirit, and fire, they are all necessary for our experience of salvation. I'll say that again. All three are necessary. One is not enough. All three. Jesus is the example of that. And he actually says that his followers will also be baptized with the same baptism he has received. Now, when we think of uh, suffering, it's not something that is very enjoyable. But we want to explore that a little bit today. The interesting thing about the three baptisms as well is that three baptisms are very closely linked. Generally, it does happen in that order. Water baptism, and then the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then the baptism of fire. It is generally in that order. At least that's how it was with Christ. Isn't that right? Now, the experience of Christ in Gethsemane, as Jesus told his disciples, is, an, is a type or is an example of what will happen to his followers. But before we go into that, I want us now to pause for a minute. We've determined the kinds of baptisms that the scriptures reveal. We are not told about any other baptism in the Bible. There's only those three. So we need to answer our question of which baptism Paul is referring to when he's speaking in 1 Corinthians. Because that's really what we're trying to find. That's the answer to our first question. So we have three options, water baptism. Question. Is the baptism of water, can you experience or can you go and have the baptism of water on the behalf of someone else or for someone else? Because the verse says, what shall they do that are baptized for the dead or on the behalf of the dead? Can you do that with the baptism of water? No, you can't. Because the baptism of water is a personal expression of what you individually have come to accept. Jesus said to his disciples, go preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So believing individually is a prerequisite for baptism. And you can't do that on behalf of someone else. So immediately now we can eliminate this baptism. Isn't that right? Paul was definitely not talking about water baptism in 1 Corinthians 15. Is that clear? Okay, number two. What about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Can you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit for someone else or on the behalf of someone else? We wish we could, but we can't. Same with the water baptism. That's why the, the Mormon practice is not biblical. How easy would it be if you could be baptized on behalf of someone else? We baptize for the whole world. But it's individual. The reception of the Holy Spirit is an individual experience based on your faith. You cannot receive it for someone else. And so option number two is also eliminated. So Paul was not referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit when he was speaking in 1 Corinthians 15. Isn't that right? That leaves us with only one option. Process of elimination. What's the last option? The baptism of suffering, fiery trial. Can you receive a baptism of suffering on the behalf of someone else or for someone else? We have yes and lots of, I better be quiet and see where this is going. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Christ, of course, someone says Christ. Christ experienced all three really on the behalf. He did everything Christ did was for us on our behalf because he was the second Adam. So there are some elements there that he did that we 
we cannot really do. We can't be baptized on behalf of the whole human race. Uh, so Christ is, is an example, but we have to recognize he was a savior too. But let's look at Colossians 1 and see what the biblical answer for this question is rather than the preacher giving you his opinion. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. And the question is, can you be baptized with the baptism of suffering on the behalf of someone else or for someone else? Colossians 1 24. Paul says, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So what's the answer? Yes. A resounding yes. You can experience suffering, intense trial, on the behalf of others. In this case, Paul says, I experience suffering for you. And that is the body or the church, the body of Christ. So we have identified what baptism Paul is talking about. Paul was not referring to the water baptism or the baptism of the Spirit. He was referring to the baptism of suffering when he was speaking in 1 Corinthians 15. You see, as we said, the experience of Christ in Gethsemane was a type for his followers. And a type means an example. That's what he said to John and his brother. And this is what will happen, not only to John and James, but to the followers of Christ. This is especially true for God's people who go through the most intense amount of suffering ever. And when does that take place? It's the time when the Bible calls it the time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. In other words, the Bible reveals very clearly that the experience that Christ went through is something that his people will go through, everyone, but especially the very last generation. They go through an experience where it seems that God has forsaken them. And it seems that all hope is lost. And their faith is tested to the uttermost. And it's an experience of intense anguish and suffering. And the purpose of this fiery ordeal is not to torture God's people. But it is to cleanse them so they can walk into heaven. That's the purpose of it. We need to keep that in mind. But what about suffering? Will we really suffer like Christ? You know, this is, an, this is an aspect that doesn't really get talked too much about because it's not very popular. Will we suffer like Christ suffered? Not to that extent. That's correct. But will we suffer as Christians? The answer is yes. There are so many scriptures that talk about suffering. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? Persecution. Persecution. Paul says we are partakers of the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul says, if we partake of his sufferings, we also partake of his glory. He also says, for you it is given not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but also suffer for his sake. Isn't that right? So the believer, the true believer, and a mark of a true believer is that he experiences suffering. Because there is a baptism of suffering that takes place. So, Christ was not only talking about James and John. Now we understand which baptism it is. Everyone happy with that? That deduction that we have reached, that investigation? If you're not happy, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk to you after if, if you have other thoughts. But uh, that's as far as the Bible reveals. We've identified which baptism. Question number two is who are these people who are baptized? We've alluded to that already. 
It's that special group at the very, very end. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 and see what the scripture brings out about this. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is the chapter of faith. That's true, but it's not only that. Hebrews chapter 11, Paul there lists some of the heroes of faith, isn't that right? Abel and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all these people, heroes of faith. And then he says something very interesting at the end of the chapter. Now notice carefully, I want you to pay careful attention here. Verse 39 of Hebrews 11. The Bible here says, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Why is that? Verse 40. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. You ever pondered that verse? It's a very strange climax for the chapter. When it talks about the faith and the heroes of faith, and it builds up all these people, and they're looking forward to this hope of the city whose builder and maker is God. And all these people died in faith, and they did not receive the promise. The climax of the chapter and the focus of the chapter is really not these people that are listed there by name. It's actually that last group of people that Paul calls us. Isn't that right? He says, all these without us cannot be made perfect. Who are the us? us. <laughs> Whoever is alive and reading that. Isn't that right? It's the very, very last group of people. You see, there's something very interesting here, brothers and sisters. All those people who died in faith have not received the promise. Their reception of the promise is dependent on us. And Paul is using their example to stimulate our faith. He's saying, look at this hero of faith. Look what they did. And look at this hero of faith and look what they did. And this hero of faith. And you know what? None of them have yet received the promise. Because they're waiting for us. And so he is encouraging our faith, saying, therefore, you know, let us do that which we need to do. There's something significant here that we need to keep in mind. There is a link. There is a connection between God's faithful people of all ages. God doesn't work solitarily with different groups here and there. All the faithful in the past are linked to those who are alive today. I want to ask you a question. You think God is happy Abraham is lying in the grave, not walking in the promised land? Or David? Or Moses? Well, Moses is already in heaven, so that, that's an exception. What about Jacob and Isaac and all these people? He's not. God made a promise. He said, I'm going to give you the promised land. Everywhere your footsteps, that's yours. And these people have not yet received the promise. And they're lying in the grave. And God says, they, without us, without you and me, cannot be made perfect. God is trying to stimulate and encourage our faith. There is a great responsibility on us. They're waiting for something. What exactly are they waiting for? Let's go to Romans 8. What exactly are they waiting for? We're looking for the group who will receive this baptism. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 has been used uh, 
repeatedly through this camp. So we're going to go to Romans 8 and we're going to look at something else. Romans 8 is, a, is an end time chapter, really. It's a beautiful chapter. We've, we're going to focus on verse 19. What exactly are they waiting for? Romans chapter 8 and verse 19. Paul, the same writer, says, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Let me explain that a little bit just in case you missed it. The earnest expectation, the longing desire. When he says the creature there, you know what that word means? The whole creation. So Paul is essentially saying, listen, the whole creation is expectant and longing with earnest desire for one thing. And that's the manifestation of the sons of God. You know why? Because when the manifestation of the sons of God takes place, this whole mess of sin and woe can come to a close. And so the whole creation, everything and everyone, even the whole universe is longing and waiting and wondering why it is taking so long for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now you might say, well, manifestation of the sons of God, what does that mean? Doesn't the Bible say that as many as received them, to them gave you power to become the sons of God? And all of us, if we are believers here today, we are all sons of God. What about this manifestation of the sons of God? You see, brothers and sisters, there is another level that we have yet to experience. That's the manifestation. What's the manifestation mean? A revelation that is visible and seen clearly. The world is not really aware that here we are, a group of believers meeting in Rome Mountain as the sons of God. There needs to be a revelation. There needs to be a manifestation that captures the attention of the whole world. Not only the whole world, but the whole universe. And then, and only then, can the next step be taken. So Paul is saying, this is the earnest expectation. This expectation will be realized before the second coming takes place. Let's look at verse 23. Same thing. Verse 23. And not only they... But ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. So Paul says, not only them, all of us, there is this climax that everyone is looking forward to, is expecting and waiting and longing for it to happen. And that climax is the manifestation of the sons of God. Why? Because nothing can happen after except this take place first. What Paul talks here about the redemption of the body, when does redemption of the body take place? And the second coming, isn't that right? When this uh, corruptible will put on? Incorruption. And, and the body will be redeemed. But brothers and sisters, this cannot take place before this expectation is realized. They, without us, cannot be made perfect. There's an experience that God's people need to go through that brings them to a point where they are manifest as the sons of God. And that experience is an experience of suffering and trial. You know, it's sufferings and trials that refine us. Isn't that right? That's why the, the Jesus, you know, he didn't give any false promises. or He says, you're going to be my follower? Expect suffering. Expect trial. Not that God willingly afflicts, but suffering is needed to bring our character to maturity. 
You can be a Christian and have a nice, joyful ride. But if you want to be a mature Christian, suffering has to take place. And this is what I really want to challenge you with today. The, vi- the final generation will go through this experience of intense suffering and bring about the manifestation of the sons of God as the key in God's hand that will unlock the prison house of the faithful of all ages. It's the they without us should not be made perfect. But when the us is manifest, then they can receive the promise. That's the implication, immediate implication. And of course, as we said, that time is the time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. It's the final generation that will go through this time as a living witness and an answer to the charges of Satan. Isn't that right? That's God's answer to the charges of Satan. You see, we were talking about dominion the other day, uh, yesterday. And we're talking about the dominion that Christ restored. And yet we still see that the Bible tells us very plainly, and make no mistake about it, that the God of this world is, is the devil. Now, Christ has restored dominion, and that restoration happens in, in a particular uh, in a particular order. But the fact that the devil is the God of this world is continuing because God's people have not allowed Christ to take full dominion in their minds and in their hearts. Because when that happens, then the dominion, the limited dominion of Satan will be broken and come to a full and manifest end. Remember we said the spiritual always precedes the physical? When the spiritual dominion of Christ is restored in the body temple of his people completely, then is the death knell of Satan realized. It has already been accomplished at the cross, but it will be realized physically when the temple is inhabited by its true high priest. And so the whole creation is groaning and moaning and bearing long with the sin and woe, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. That's a very, very high responsibility. Go down to verse 35 and 36. The whole chapter really is dealing with this particular aspect. That's the climax of the chapter. That we need to be in Christ and have the victory. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? What's the answer? No, but these things will happen. That's the final test that will take place ultimately and to its greatest degree in the time of trouble. Verse 37, uh, sorry, verse 36. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the the slaughter. How can you be killed all the day long? You know what that means? That's That's not physical death. That means you are accounted as dead. You are going through an intense time of persecution and suffering that brings you nigh unto death all the day long and Paul is saying this is the test when we really have the love of God in our hearts there will come a test where the devil will challenge that with everything that he has and he says nothing will separate us the fact that we're not experiencing that level of suffering and persecution is because we have not yet grasped a hold of the love and faith that God wants us to have that will withstand this storm. When God's people have that, when the storm comes, it's going to be rough times, but God's people have to hold on by faith. 
And that's why we're told in the Spirit of Prophecy that many people are too indolent to obtain the experience that they need and that they don't have for the coming crisis. You know, the crisis is delayed, not because, you know, things in the world are not ready and the president hasn't passed the Sunday law yet and the political situation. The crisis is delayed because God's people are not yet sealed. Isn't that right? The angels are holding back the winds and the key that they're waiting for is God's people. The earnest expectation of the whole creation is waiting for God's people. 2,000 years waiting for God's people. And our turn. It's our, it's our shift now. It's our turn. It's your turn and my turn. So there are great parallels between the experience of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and the experience of God's people in the last days. Christ felt forsaken in Gethsemane. Isn't that right? It was an intense agony. There was great suffering. And he was praying earnestly. And he could not see beyond that experience. Isn't that right? We're told it was so dark, it was so intense, the hordes of evil were so intense in their attack on him, he could not see through the portals of the tomb. As a matter of fact, he actually did not want to go through the experience. He did not feel like going through it. He said it. That's how bad it was. But he submitted and surrendered to God, and he came forth as a victor. And the reason why he came forth as a victor is brought out in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's go there. And this is the parallel that we need to keep in mind. Hebrews chapter 12. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 12. <coughs> verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. The Bible here says, Wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down on the right hand of the of the throne of God why did Christ endure the cross what's it say there because of the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before him? The eternal joy, that, the, the joy that was set before him is all the people who will receive everlasting life. That's you and me. And this is brought up really beautifully in the book, Desire of Ages, in that chapter dealing with the Gethsemane. I don't know if you remember reading it, but Christ was on the ground. He's prostrate on the ground, and he's praying, and he's sweat, sweating uh, blood. And then an angel comes. Isn't that right? Do you remember that? To increase, he's really discouraged. He's having a hard time. His disciples, they're fast asleep. There is no sympathizing heart. And he feels like giving up. And the devil is whispering his accusations in his ear. And God sends an angel to strengthen Christ. And you remember what the angel does? He lifts Christ up. And he takes his head on his, on his breast. And he points him up. And it's like Christ sees a vision of what is to be when his mission is successful. Isn't that right? You remember that? He sees souls redeemed and eternally secure forever in heaven. And that joy that is set before him is a reminder and an encourager for him to go all the way to the, to the cross. 
That's what encouraged him, that others will benefit because of what his experience is. That suffering of intense, that baptism of intense suffering that he experiences will be a blessing of eternal life to many, many, many. And that joy enables him to endure the cross. You know, that's very significant because that parallel also applies to the last generation. As we shall see in a minute as we go on. You see, the last group, the last generation, the final generation, like Christ, will also be surrounded by enemies. They will go through a time of intense anguish and suffering. A time where they will have to pray. A time where they will feel forsaken by not only friends, but family as well. But through that time, they will be strengthened by God and they will be victors. And they will be victors also because of the joy that is set before them. Just like Christ was, because they're looking at Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, isn't that right? And looking at him, how he accomplished and finished the race is how they also must accomplish and finish the race. What is the joy that is set before them? It is the realization and understanding that all these faithful of all ages cannot receive the promise without us. Isn't that right? You know, we don't think of the last days in that way sometimes. We don't think of uh, the experience that we go through. And a lot of people, we, when we discuss end time events, that's a popular topic among Adventists and the time of trouble and how bad will it be. And a lot of people have a lot of apprehension about the time of trouble. I know people say, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that the Lord will have to lay in the grave before that time comes because I, I won't be able to make it. And we all, all we're thinking of most of the time is, is how am I going to go through it? Will I have enough faith? It's all about me. But I want to tell you today, brothers and sisters, it is not all about me. It is all about them. Because we are all members of one body. That's really the thought I want to bring across to you today. The last generation will vindicate God's plan of salvation for mankind. And all of heaven is waiting for that. Actually, we're told in spirit prophecy, the honor of God and the honor of Christ, only two, by the way, the honor of God and the honor of Christ is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. Well, who are, well, we answered that question so far. Question number two, we asked which baptism? Who are those who are baptized? It's the last generation. Third question was, who are the dead that they're baptized for? We've already alluded to that. But let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go back there again. 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Who are the dead? Who is the second group? Who are the dead? The context of 1 Corinthians 15 is speaking about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is dealing with the resurrection. The word resurrection or or like words, the different forms of the word, is mentioned over 24 times in that particular part of the chapter. That's the theme, that's the topic, that's what Paul is dealing with, the resurrection. Because obviously there were people there who were teaching that there is no resurrection. And so he goes to this great argument to show the fallacy of this belief and to show that indeed there is a resurrection. And the climax of his argument is verse 29, the one that we started with. But we want to look at verse 12. Notice the beginning of that, of that section. He summarizes for us what he's talking about as well. 
Verse 12, he says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? That was the problem he was dealing with. And so this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, that verse has to deal with the resurrection. That's the context. That's why it has nothing to do with water baptism. And who are those people that are promised a resurrection because of Christ's resurrection? It's all those that believe in him. Isn't that right? You know, everybody will rise, but not everybody will rise to eternal life. It's only those who believe in him that rise and die no more. That's the whole purpose of what Paul is really talking about here. And so the dead that Paul is referring to are all those who have died believing in the promise of a resurrection forever. The believers in Christ. Or in other words, all those who are part of the first resurrection. Isn't that right? All those who, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. But the dead in Christ cannot rise until that last generation goes through that experience. Until the manifestation of the sons of God. There is a very important link there. And I hope you're seeing that link. You see, the Bible says we're all members of one body. And very often, we, we too often have this individualistic way of thinking. It's all about me, my experience. I'm doing well. You know, this brother, he's not up to my level, but, you know, I'm me. We don't think as a body, generally speaking. We have to think as a body. And the body is composed not only of those who are alive today. The body is the whole body of believers in the entire history of the earth. We are members of that body. And there are members in that body who cannot receive certain promises and privileges until these other members get their act together and do that which God says they need to do. Not in their own strength, of course. But that is something that needs to take place. You know, Paul puts it really well. He says, if one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And if one member of the body is honored, the whole body is honored. And it's when that last member of the body, that last generation, is honored by being the manifestation of the sons of God, then the whole body can also be honored in the same way. And that's really what unlocks the graves of the dead. You see, uh, last night I got my finger caught in the door. I don't know if you can see. It was very, very painful. So it's not a very big part of my body. But, you know, as I went up to to put some cold water on it. I, the pain was intense and I just felt a bit uh, lightheaded. I thought I was going to faint. You know, I hurt my finger here, but the whole body is affected. Isn't that right? You know, that's an object lesson in nature. God has put that. It's, it's all over in nature to teach us about the spiritual reality. But too often we think of me, maybe my family, and that's good. Well, the body, they just have to get their act together. That's why we're still here. To a large degree, that's why we're still here. I want to talk just briefly on the discipline of suffering. I know our time is running, but I, I cannot neglect to mention this because this is important. The discipline of suffering is the process of purification that God uses to mature the character of his people. If you remember something in the story of uh, the three Hebrew boys in, uh, in Babylon, you remember their names? Shadrach, Mishnah, and, and Azariah, they're the pagan names. We all remember them by their pagan names, right? Well, what are their Hebrew names? 
Okay, that's it. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay, so these three boys, or young men, uh, they were thrown in the fire, right? Because they were faithful to God. They're a type of what will happen in the last days. And the fire consumed nothing except what? The ropes that bound them. And you know, when they came out of the fire, the entire attention of the whole nation was focused on them. That was like a manifestation of the sons of God. And what brought that manifestation about was going through the fiery furnace. In the same way, that fiery furnace, the time of trouble such as never was, will be the process that burns the final ropes that bind us to this earth and bring us on the other side where it is now manifest who the sons of God are. That was a type. And that's the type here. So the, so the discipline of suffering is really the discipline of purification. And I want to ask you a question. Are you suffering? I want to make a very clear distinction here. If you are suffering for your own faults, it doesn't count. That's what Peter says, isn't that right? If you be buffeted for your own faults, what glory is it? That doesn't count. But if you suffer, having done no wrong, if you suffer innocently and for righteousness sake, then God looks upon that with pleasure. You know, our sister this morning was sharing about their trial and their suffering. And, uh, and I'm thankful she shared about that because... That's to be expected in a Christian experience. Are you suffering? If your journey does not involve suffering, I want you to pay close attention to your journey. And I'm, I want to clarify, I'm not talking about the suffering that comes about because of your mishaps or wrongdoing. Like you didn't put fuel in the car and you get, you know, stranded on the road. That, that's not suffering in a Christian sense. That's a lack of judgment. So I'm not talking about that. That's important because we are very good at being martyrs. And something happens and, oh, I'm suffering, Lord. I'm suffering, Lord. I'm talking about the suffering that God is referring to. The one that purifies us. The one that happens to us when we don't deserve it, when we did not ask for it, when we did not look for it. When we are innocent, as Christ was innocent, and he suffered. That's the one I'm talking about. Are you suffering in that way? And count it all joy. It is hard when you suffer that way. It's not easy. Because our sense of, of justice and indignation rises up. Say, Lord, why is this happening to me? There is no explanation for this. And when I talk about suffering, I mean all kinds of suffering. You know, we all have a cross to bear. Isn't that right? Suffering affliction, whether it be bodily or, or mentally or in any kind of way. There is suffering. And sometimes the suffering that happens to us does not have a clear answer as to why this is taking place. Isn't that right? But remember, brothers and sisters, God sees down the line. And there is a time of trouble that is coming that most of us are not ready for. And we need to prepare for. Suffering now is many times a preparatory school for what is coming then, in the future. It takes great suffering to mature a Christian character. Make no mistake about it. That's how we grow into the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. That's how he accomplished it. He learned obedience how? By the things that he, that he suffered. The sources of suffering are important to consider. There are many sources of suffering, but there is one very important source of suffering. It was for Christ the source of the greatest suffering. Jesus said, a man's enemies are who? Are they of his own household? Do you know what that means? Your brothers and your sisters and your family. 
can be the source of your greatest suffering as a Christian. Isn't that right? Jesus said what? I was wounded where? In the house of my enemies? No, in the house of my, my friends. Who can inflict the greatest suffering on you? Those who are closest to you. Isn't that right? And too often that takes place when friends and loved ones and brothers and sisters misunderstand us and misrepresent us and say all manner of evil against us. And we suffer. Provided we did not cause the suffering. Always keep that in mind. And we wonder, why is this taking place? You know, take joy. I, I like to look at that because I experience things like that from time to time. And I say, Lord, I, I need to remember that that's how we will be in the end. And this is practice. This is a practice run. That's really what it is. How is your suffering? That's the question. And that's where Jesus said we are to love our enemies. Isn't that right? Because when that takes place, the greatest temptation for us is retaliation, is bitterness, is anger, is animosity. You know, our sister was honest this morning. She was sharing. She said, you know, I, I get angry sometimes. And I can understand that because it's unjust. You know, that, that was the greatest temptation for Christ in those last scenes. Isn't that right? That, you know, the devil, you can just imagine the devil whispering in his ears, look at these, these sinners, what they're doing to you, and you're dying for them. You know, anger and bitterness were things that Christ overcame. And that's why when he says, love your enemies, you know, it's easy to love our enemies that we've never met that are out there, over there. We comfort ourselves as loving my enemies. I, I don't, ha don't hate them. But this brother here, oh, no, I can't talk to him. This sister... Loving your enemies is hardest because Jesus said the enemies are who? They of your own household. That's the enemies that we are to love. They're the enemies that are hardest to love. Isn't that right? That's the challenge. So I want to challenge you with that thought. Paul's enemies. You know Paul the Apostle? He had a lot of enemies. Who were his worst enemies? You remember the Jews? Which kind of Jews? The Jews who were zealous for the law. Isn't that right? They of his own household. They were zealous for the law. They were his own. They were his worst enemies. What's the equivalent of that today? I'll let you think about that. Because these are the parallels. The Jews who were zealous for the law were Paul's greatest enemies. And we will have similar situations in the last days. So brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you, hold on to your seats. It's going to be a choppy ride. But we have a good captain. Praise God for the good captain. To be a mature Christian requires suffering. And I want to challenge you with that. Suffering is not something that we can bring about by our own doing. Suffering comes about when we live according to God's will. I want to share with you a poem that brings that up really, really well. That really touched me. And I want to share it with you because it says it oh so well regarding this particular point. The poem is entitled, Hast Thou No Scar? Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascended star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wounds? 
Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against the tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? That's a question that is worth pondering when it comes to the discipline of suffering. The final generation, my brothers and sisters, is not a group of people who will live in 2090. It's not the people who are down the line from us. The final generation are those who are alive today. The final generation will go through a baptism of suffering on the behalf of all the dead who died believing in Christ of all the ages. And when they are honored, the whole body is honored. In Hebrews chapter 12, I think we're still there. No, we left there. In Hebrews chapter 12, you remember uh, we said Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. You know, when we realize and we understand, when it dawns on our dull minds, what is hinging on the experience of God's people in the last days, maybe it might inspire us to greater faith. And that's why God reveals these things to us. So we've answered our three questions so far. Isn't that right? Which baptism? Who are baptized? And who are the dead? 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Let's read it again with the answers that we have found inserted in the text and see if it makes a little more sense. And our time is almost up. So I need to start closing. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29. 1 Corinthians 15, 29, and keep in mind the answers that we found and we will see how that reads. Else, what shall they do which are baptized with the baptism of suffering for the dead in Christ? If the dead in Christ rise not at all, why are they, the last generation, then baptized with the baptism of suffering for the dead in Christ? That's the question. Why would God's people go through this intense trial on the behalf of everyone if there never will be a resurrection? There's no point. That's the argument that Paul uses here, the clinching argument, that there is indeed a resurrection. And the last question I asked, what is in all this for us today? I think the answer is getting more and more obvious, isn't it? There will be no resurrection for the righteous brothers and sisters without us going through that experience. And when we're told in Spirit Prophecy to strive to be among the 144,000, because that's really the name of that group, we generally think on that in selfish terms. So I need to be in that group that's front seats in the bus of salvation. Isn't that right? We think that. So well, I think that sometimes, you know, 144,000, what an honor. We never probably ever think that the rest of the bus will not get there without us being in the 144,000. That's really the motivation for why we ought to be there. You know, it's not about us and being with Christ that's all good and well. There is a body to be saved. 
You know the, the, the picture in the book of Revelation of, of the dead crying out, the martyrs, you know, under the fifth seal, is a very wonderful picture of how there is a longing for the redemption that is promised. You see, how long, O oh Lord, holy and just? We know they're dead. They're not really crying that out. They're actually revealing God's mind. How long will that be? And God says, yeah, just wait a little longer. We're waiting on those guys in Rhone Mountain and on all these others in different parts of the world. Isn't that right? That's really the key, that they without us should not be made perfect. Uh, verse 20, let's just quickly look at a few final thoughts and see how that links with us today. Verse 20 of the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. I just want to show a few more verses that confirm what we found so far. In verse 20, he says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. That's a name for Christ, isn't that right? He is the first fruits of them that slept. Who are them that slept? Those who believe in him. He is the first fruits. And uh, in Revelation 14, uh, you don't have to go there, I suppose our time is running, but Revelation 14, 4, it talks about the 144,000 and it also calls them the first fruits. And they also are the first fruits of them that are asleep in the same way. You see, the first fruits match up. Christ is the first fruits and the 144,000 are the first fruits. There is a matching up here. And Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. And so also the 144,000 and their experience that they go through will bring about a resurrection of those that are asleep. And if there is a first fruits, then there is a? Not second fruits. Some people say second fruits. There's no second fruits. There's, no, there's a harvest. There's no second fruits in the Bible. There's first fruits and there is, there is a harvest. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, that's first, afterward they that are Christ's when? At his coming. That's when the resurrection will take place. Isn't that right? And so the 144,000 being the first fruits, that experience that they go through is actually what justifies God in resurrecting all the faithful dead. That's the argument that God is waiting for to pull all these people out of the grave. David, poor old David is sitting in the grave waiting for us. And Daniel and Jacob and all the faithful. Who's your hero? Name your hero. He's waiting for you and me. But there is an order here. There is a sequence that we need to keep in mind. Let's go to Mark chapter 4. This is significant because a lot of people wonder why is that? Why is that required? Mark chapter 4. You with me so far? I know you might be getting hungry. Your stomach is rumbling. We're almost there. Okay? So hold on a little longer. Mark chapter 4, verse 29. Mark chapter 4. The 144,000 are the first fruits. First fruits. Mark 4.29 says, But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. There is a very, very important link between the first fruits and the harvest. As soon as the fruit is ripe, that immediately means that the harvest is ripe and it can be gathered. And so long as the fruit or the first fruit is not ripe, that means the harvest cannot be gathered. And brothers and sisters, we have the privilege of being among 
the first fruits. That's why we're told we are to strive to be among the 144,000 so that we might finish and bring about the harvest that Christ can gather. As soon as the fruit is brought forth, he puts in the sickle to harvest. And then Christ tells us in the parable of the sower when the harvest is. The harvest is the end of the world. Isn't that right? And the reapers are who? The angels, that's what we're told. And of course, in Revelation 14, right after the three angels' messages, we see the Son of Man there, one set on the cloud, wearing white, and he has a sharp sickle in his hand. And the angel comes out and says, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. What does that mean? The fruit has ripened. The first fruits are revealed. The sons of God are manifest. So now you can thrust in your sickle and reap. And that harvest comes out of the grave. There are many, many scriptures that bring that out. That's the question that Paul is asking. Let's go to Revelation chapter 7 and see the identifying name for this group. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. And verses 9 and 10. What is the name of this group? Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. The Bible here says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. The great multitude is the harvest that is gathered, that is waiting right now. This harvest is gathered as a result of the first fruits coming to fruition. No wonder Paul said, they without us cannot be made perfect. So you see now the role that the 144,000 play in the plan of salvation. It's not just about them, and it's not just about vindicating God's character. It's about vindicating God's character to a point that he can draw out all these faithful of all the ages out of the grave. You see, why is that required? Because it's important to understand that not everybody who died in the grave has necessarily perfected their character. Isn't that right? Not everybody who died in the grave has necessarily reached a point of maturity. So then we see the connection in that when the Bible says, when the fruit is ripe, the harvest is ripe. You see, when the 144,000 go through that intense suffering and trial, and they show that the character that they have developed will withstand that test, that's a vindication that now God can claim all these others because if these others were put in the same shoes, they would have the same result. It's just that they did not live at that time, and so that prevented them. You see, Satan's argument is God cannot reproduce what he did in Christ on earth. Isn't that right? The answer to the argument is the 144,000. And when that argument is answered, then God is vindicated and justified in pulling out of the grave all those who are waiting for him. You know, when you get to heaven, I don't know about you, I'm sure you have thought of that. Uh, I have, and in discussions I know people have. You want to meet some of these uh, Bible heroes, isn't that right? We'll have a favorite character, go meet Abraham, we know all about him, and and, and we read about him and we just want to go shake hands with him maybe and say thank you, Abraham, you know, or Daniel or Joseph or Joshua or one of these people. Isn't that right? 
And we look forward to that. We think we know them very, very well because of the accounts that we have about them in the scriptures. Perhaps we do not think of it the other way around. We maybe don't think that they are looking forward to meeting the last group of people and uh, say thank you. It's because of you that we have been harvested. How long did it take you? 2012. You lasted till 2012? <laughs> Isn't that right? You know, God said to Daniel, you will stand in your lot in the last days. And Daniel is waiting for that. You know, brothers and sisters, all these faithful of all ages, their reception of the promise is dependent on you and me. Do we realize the privilege and the responsibility that is on our shoulders? That's why Paul says, else what shall they do that are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not anymore? In Isaiah chapter 51, we have a beautiful verse. Isaiah chapter 51. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 51. This is our last verse. Isaiah chapter 51. We've had a long race that we've been running. Isaiah 51. And we will look at verses 22 and 23. Notice what the beautiful promise here is. Verse 22. Thus saith thy, thy Lord, the Lord, and thy God, that pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again God is speaking to his people in the last days and you know that cup that Jesus says they have to drink and that baptism that they have to be baptized with God is closely watching the proceedings and there will come a point in that experience when God will say okay that's it to here and no more and he takes the cup and particularly the part that they don't have to drink is the dregs of the cup you know what the dregs of the cup is that's death Jesus drank the cup to its dregs. He died. The people that he represents will go through intense suffering, but they will not die. They will manifest the character of God. Notice verse 23. But I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee, which have said to thy soul, bow down, that we may go over. And thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. Now, I love that promise that God says, I'll take it out of your hand and never more will you have to drink it again. You know, we look with a sense of foreboding sometimes on the time of trouble, but God is watching very carefully and he will not allow any flame to touch us any more than it has to, to prepare us for the kingdom. God is waiting for the manifestation of his people. The Bible says that, you know, the creatures, we said all creation is waiting and longing for that. And I want to close with an illustration that to me brings that out so vividly and so well. And I want to leave you with that. And that illustration actually comes from, from the Olympics. You know, in the Olympics, they had the Olympics recently. Uh, in the Olympics, there is a very interesting race. I used to, when I used to like to watch that stuff, uh, I used to really like the relay race. You know the relay race? Where they have a little uh, stick or a baton, and they line up the, the team, different parts of the track, and they have to run a certain distance and pass it on. And the, the runners have to develop the skill of running and exchanging the, the baton while they're running and not drop it 
and still be ahead of the others. That's really complex, but it's, it's a real picture of teamwork, very good picture of teamwork. And uh, the Bible tells us that we are to run the race with patience, looking to the champion, isn't that right? The champion runner, Jesus, who finished the race. That's how you learn how to finish the race. And in running this race, as we look to Jesus who finished the race, we have to be mindful of all the audience, all the spectators in the stands, huh? You know, I find it very interesting that uh, as the race comes to an end, you know, usually there's four, if I remember correctly. Uh, the last runner, you know, the whole thing climaxes with the last runner. It's almost like people are on their feet because the race might go a little bit this way and that way. And this runner might make up for the mistakes of that runner. Or this runner might mess up the one who gave him an advantage. It, it can go anyway. It's very hard to predict what the outcome will be until the last Runner, Well, brothers and sisters, that race is a fit picture for us. And all these runners in the race who have run before us, carrying the baton of truth, they have passed it on to us, and they're on the sidelines waiting. They're in the grave waiting. Waiting for the race to finish. You know, it's interesting that when a runner finishes his little, uh, his little sprint, uh, the race is not over until the last one crosses the line. Isn't that right? Even though he might have run ahead of all the others and did well, but the race is not finished. All his hope is hinged on the last runner. The Bible says, day without us cannot be made perfect. And you know, I just like to picture that the whole universe is in the stands, watching the last generation, the final runner. That's us, okay? Isn't that right? I don't think I need to, that's obvious, but I just want to make sure you don't miss it. That's us. That's the, we are the final runner, brothers and sisters. And the sad fact of the matter is this the devil has gotten us so confused that this last leg of the race where we're asleep on the track and all these faithful runners who have run well they have endured they ran a, they did, fought a good fight of faith and they did their duty and they passed the baton and the whole creation is looking and longing for us to wake up out of our slumber and run the last leg of the race but remember we have to run with the with the baton, isn't that right? You have to have the right baton. The baton is a symbol of the truth. And the devil is very clever. He got us to drop the baton, and then there are about 100 million batons on the floor, counterfeit ones. You know, and we have to pick the right one, and this brother picks this one, and that one says heretic. That one picks that one, his brother apostasy. That one says this one, that one says Babylon. And we are so confused, and we are in such a problem. And the problem is not us not finding the baton. All that means is the race is not being finished. You know, here is Daniel who ran well. And Daniel says, oh, man, these guys, he dropped it. He's not on the track. He's up over there. And this brother is fighting with that one. And that's our condition, brothers and sisters. That's really the case. Now, Daniel's dead. I don't believe he's alive. You know what I mean. But that's, that's the picture. Everybody is waiting and longing for that. To take place. The interesting thing is in those races there is a tactic. They usually put the best runners at the beginning and at the end. And the so-so runners or the not as good runners, they're in the middle. And there's a reason for that. Usually the best runner is the final one. And the reason for that is this. If the first runners should mess up or not do as well, the last one can make up for them. The last runners can make up for those who might have not done as well. And they can, you know, recover their, their, their delay, so to speak. 
So brothers and sisters, I just want to leave you with that thought. I want to challenge you. When we are encouraged to be a part of the 144,000, when we are encouraged to run the race with endurance, we have a great responsibility. We have the dead of all ages waiting to be delivered from the prison house of death. I just want to leave that with you. I want you to think and ponder on that and to pray and ask the Lord for the experience that you will need to enable you to endure the baptism of suffering. That's the great honor that we have. And the whole universe wanting to meet us. You know something? I just want to mention that before we pray. The great heroes in a battle who win a victory and they have all kinds of uh, uh, wounds and scars. You know, the heroes in a battle, they wear their scars as with pride, isn't that right? As emblems of their victory and of their courage. That's what it will be with Christ, the greatest hero who won the battle. You know, his scars are an emblem of his victory, isn't that right? And we have suffering, we have trial. You might have some scars. You know, the scars can be an emblem of the victory. Don't let them be an infection that kills you. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.